The main reason we find it difficult to think critically about democracy is that it requires us to think critically about ourselves. That's the view of my guest today, Tracy McKenzie, who is a historian at Wheaton College, a Christian liberal arts college. And we discuss his recent book, We the Fallen People, in which he argues that Americans in general and American Christians in particular have forgotten what the framers always knew, which is that human beings are flawed, broken, inclined towards sin. In other words, fallen. He contrasts this view of fallen humanity with what he calls the democratic gospel based on the comforting fiction that we are naturally good. In this conversation, we we discuss the development of this idea that America is great because America is good, a much repeated quote by, by politicians, much beloved politicians, most recently by Hillary Clinton, which Alexis de Tocqueville actually never said, although he's the one who's purported to have said it. And uh, we argue about the extent to which democracy is intrinsically good or mostly as a, a means to another end, other good ends. We discuss the balance between two different Christian anthropologies, uh, one, one positive, based perhaps on the idea of being made in the image of God, and one negative, the idea of the fall. Talk quite a lot about the use and misuse of, of history by political partisans and the need for religious people in particular, his main audience, I think, to take history uh, more seriously. He's a really interesting thinker. Uh, he's also a great writer. I thoroughly recommend his book. Uh, and this was a fun conversation. One technical note is that there was a problem with the recording right at the beginning, a glitch. And so the conversation will seem like it's starting abruptly partway through. Um, but I hope you'll forgive that technical problem. As always, if you like dialogues, please let everybody know and uh, tweet us and like us and all, all that good stuff. But in the meantime, here's my dialogue with Tracy McKenzie. I really learned a lot from your book, We We the Fallen People. It's a really rich and, and deep history. Uh, and I think a, a really interesting attempt to apply some of those lessons to the to the current world. So we're going to talk about original sin, what that means, why it matters, what the framers meant, whether America is a Christian nation, quote unquote, if so, what that means. That's some of the stuff we're going to get into. But you you actually sandwich the book, you open and close the book with this nice story of a long misquotation, I guess, a long history of misquotation with Hillary Clinton countering Donald Trump in a debate in 2016, saying, uh, encountering his idea of making America great again. She said, America is already great. She said, America is great because America is good. And there she was actually quoting many people uh, all the way back to, a. well, we thought it was Tocqueville, turns out not to be. Can you... Just tell that story a little bit, uh, and why and why you thought that was a good frame with which to start this conversation. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the, the the question that really animated the book was um, having to do with the assumptions about human nature that we bring to uh, the way that we think about politics, the way that we speak and engage politically. Uh, and um, one of the things that I was convinced of was that the ways that Americans think about human nature with regard to politics had changed dramatically since the American founding. Uh, so the anecdote that you referred to, uh, I thought was a perfect foil to sort of get us into that. Uh, and the way the story goes, uh, as it is commonly told, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, after he returns to France, after his um, visit to the United States in the early 1830s, he is supposed to have um, appeared before the French Chamber of Deputies just to report his findings. Uh, and he tells his audience that he had searched for 
the source of America's greatness and genius. And he looked in all these various places in her fertile fields and uh, her factories, in her harbors, uh, in her matchless constitution, in her dynamic Congress and so forth. And in all of these places, he had looked for the source of America's greatness and it was not there. Uh, but then he says in quite the, this quotation in, in quite a dramatic fashion says, it was not until I entered America's churches and I heard her pulpits uh, sort of flame with, with fire uh, that, that I knew the source of America's uh, greatness. America is great because America is good. And if ever America ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Uh, you're right. Uh, the, uh, the book begins really with the um, Democratic National Convention. Uh, in uh, 2016, uh, and Hillary Clinton does uh, say this is what Donald Trump doesn't get. America is already great because America is good and immediately sets off a, a Twitter storm. Uh, Sean Spicer is saying um, a plagiarism at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, Breitbart.com has these big headlines busted uh, and uh, immediately back and forth. Uh, yes, uh, yes, she was quoting Alexis de Tocqueville, but doesn't everybody know this quote from Alexis de Tocqueville? Why did she have to uh, acknowledge that? Uh, and of course, the kicker in this uh, little epilogue is that Alexis de Tocqueville never said n- anything of the sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that led me when I first thought about that to a kind of fascinating investigation of where this quote uh, originated. And honestly, I can't say. Uh, for sure. But what I can say is that it has been a staple of uh, American political rhetoric for quite a long time. And I, I list in the book all of the different uh, presidents and vice presidents and congressmen and senators and public intellectuals uh, who have made this quote. And I just think it's uh, helpful because I think it sort of uh, speaks to uh, the assumption of innate uh, human goodness that has become uh, so common to the way Americans engage politically. Yes. And in fact, I think you, you then... I think suggest at the end that it's more likely to have been a British congregationist. I think was it Reed who published a book in the same year as Tocqueville, and no one knew yes. about that. And you have a quote which from him. which which no one has ever heard of. No. Uh, and and actually, the very last sentence uh, of that book uh, is that um, effectively America will be great if America is good. Uh, and I, I think the way that we um, uh, modify that quotation is telling in and of itself. Yeah, and you and then you talk about how Eisenhower used it too. And so it's it's interesting just your journey down the rabbit hole of the continued misquotation. But as you say, the substance behind it is the desire to use that quote and then put it in the hands of Tocqueville, who's sort of just this hero of you know America America's idea of, of herself. Is precisely because we so want that to be true. I mean, even as you mm-hmm. even as you read out, you know what he was supposed to have said and didn't. You know, I had goosebumps. I'm a new American. <laughs> like it was. I mean, it's it like it's one of those things that's like, so beautiful. It must be true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. Well, it is inspiring. Yeah, and and so it shows up in all kinds of dictionaries of quotations and other kinds of collections. Um, uh, and and I, th- there is something that is positive uh, in that, in the sense that uh, I'm not sure that it's a bad aspiration. Uh, and I think that um, it does acknowledge something, say, the founders of America would have agreed with, which is that um, our values make a difference to the flourishing of our of our governmental uh, framework. Um, but it's a very, very different assumption about human nature than they would have brought to the table. Yeah, and let's 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 get into that because I think this sets the scene for what follows, which is your investigation of what the founders, the framers, actually thought about human nature. 
and ha- and how far their their anthropology was based on this idea that we're intrinsically good and how far it was based on this idea that we're fallen and we'll this will come to their theology in in a moment but i think in a sense that all that matters at this stage is that you you say they had a much more realistic view partly based on kind of recent actually what had happened in the years before that with the confederation if i can read you correctly which is like let's be realistic about this and that we actually construct a democracy that is based on the presumption of human brokenness rather than on the presumption of human goodness and that and that people have been falsely attributing to them a view that they were building a democracy for good people whereas in fact they were building a democracy for fallen people is that have i characterized your position correctly and can you say a bit more about how you came to that conclusion of their yeah view i i think um i think that's uh, uh pretty close uh c- certainly um most of the prominent leaders of the american founding uh had been influenced by various uh enlightenment writers uh, maybe montesquieu the most influentially he had talked about virtue as really essential to the uh, flourishing of a republican uh, form of government. Uh, and so you, you hear, you read the prominent founders uh, referring to virtue uh, all the time, but it sort of dawned on me gradually uh, that the most common context in which they're referring to virtue is to bemoan the fact that it's it's in short supply. Uh, and uh, other historians, I'm not the only one to point this out, would, would say that by the time of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, uh, most of the individuals who took part in that thought that they were in the midst of a crisis of virtue, that, that the experience under the Articles of Confederation had shown, as, as Washington, George Washington put it, uh, that they'd really thought too highly of human nature uh, and that it was essential that they take human nature more realistically as they, as they found it. Uh, and so, uh, whereas they would have uh, applauded the encouragement of virtue, they would have welcomed the exhibition of virtue, uh, they thought that it was absolutely um, uh, fruitless to frame a form of government, assuming that there would be a virtuous people. Yeah, you have a nice. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, you have a nice line. So it's saying they exhorted virtue but didn't expect virtue. Yeah, yeah, uh, a- absolutely. So, so the way that they sh- construct the uh, the framework of the Constitution uh, is is certainly with that in mind. All of the features that, at least in the United States, you sort of are introduced to in in middle school and. Um, the checks and balances, the separation of powers, th- those only make sense uh, in the context of an assumption that individuals are going to pursue their self-interest, uh, that that's going to be true of um, elected officials, it's going to be true of the electorate, and you have, to, you have to assume that that will be in place and create some sort of framework that helps to mitigate that. Yeah, I want to ask a, 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 a slightly sideways question, then we'll come back to the main thread, which is that when I read that that piece of your book about the crisis of virtue and how that's the, the way that the, the framers were seeing things was really lamenting the lack of virtue, both in uh, leaders in the colonies, as they then were, um, but also in the people in general. And, and it's interesting to me, I, you know, I'm Mill's biographer, and, and you just in Mill, too, uh, in 19th century liberals, and it's also in some post-war discussions and, and it's kind of everywhere right back to peter the hermit and the new testament and so my question for you is a sort of an unfair question in a way it's like isn't there always a crisis of virtue aren't aren't the elites always lamenting the fact that people are virtuous enough that leaders aren't virtuous enough and so it sort of feels like it's really hard for me to identify a period in history when those in positions of power and authority weren't lamenting the lack of virtue very often in, in the younger generation there's very often an age thing mm-hmm. here 
right? It's yeah. young, young people today, but isn't it just people today generally? <laughs> That's a fascinating question. I actually haven't thought of it in quite that um, quite that way. Uh, if I would just situate it in the context of, um, let's say, the 18th century, I mean, I think a lot of the uh, political thinkers in the colonies uh, by the middle of the 18th century um, were were comfortable with bemoaning the extent of corruption in the British government, and they were certainly concerned about um, the, the ways in which um, governmental corruption would ultimately uh, work to the to the detriment of the public welfare, but in that language, they they tended to pit uh, a, a, a virtuous people uh, against a corrupt uh, administration. Uh, the idea that, for example, as they understand the coming of the American Revolution, it's it's corrupt councillors uh, immediately around George III who are shaping British policy. It's not Parliament, uh, or at least to the degree that. The colonies could be represented in parliament. They could trust parliament because parliament represented the people and the people would never oppress themselves. Um, what I think is, is really significant about the way that men like Madison and others are thinking about this by 1787 uh, is they're saying that um, it's, it's not just the, the leaders that have a monopoly on corruption. Uh, it's, it's something that is uh, endemic to uh, human, human nature so that wherever power uh, is manifested, there we will have uh, threats to um, uh, to liberty. Uh, so um, I, 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 I take your point that concerns about deficits of virtue are uh, may, may be a constant in in the way that we think about this. But I think that also that there's something new uh, going on um, in, in the late uh, late 1780s. Uh, Madison's idea that um, if a majority ever coalesces, the minority is inevitably uh, at risk. Mm. Uh, I think is one manifestation of that. Yes, and you, you use the really moving example of Cherokee Nation I think, as an example of the tyranny of the majority, which actually Mill took from Tocqueville and turned into a, a really big part of mm. his own argument. And in fact, it was one of the rain, main reasons why Mill was against universal suffrage uh, mm. until he was introduced the idea of proportional representation because he was fearful of this idea of, of the mass. But it's interesting that the way you just framed it as the, the, the salt of the earth, virtuous citizenry versus the kind of corrupt elite. And it's almost like a reverse to the way that virtue is sometimes talked about in other traditions. Like, you know, in a Burkean worldview, it's almost like the virtue is in the, arist it's in the aristocracy. It's in the, the, the leaders, the born leaders, precisely because the mass are so lacking in virtue. And I will say that was very much what Mill was worried about, the lack of virtue in, in the mass. Whereas there was this sense, maybe you're right, in that period they had to move beyond this idea that it was just the elite that were the problem uh, and salt of the, earth, the salt of the earth people. And because they were actually building, building a way to govern <laughs> that required them to have mm -hmm. an anthropology. And mm -hmm. that anthropology, mm -hmm. as you say, had to be a more realistic one. It's a really interesting way to, to think about it. Now, there's also this other part of your, your book, and I will say you're kind of incredibly even-handed as far as I'm able to tell, not as an expert in this field at all, in terms of the claims that different groups make about the founding and about the kind of country we are. And one of those claims is that we were always a Christian nation. And there's another sort of mistold story that you talk about, which is the, this um, story of the prayer that was being told. Can you say, uh, you know, or the, pra the prayer that never happened is how I now kind of think about it in my, my, my mind. And there is this kind of beautiful idea among some people that it was 
almost like an ecumenical council in the sense that the Holy Spirit descended at a certain point, you know, on the convention. And that was the moment where the Christian nation was born. And that seems like all wrong in your telling, right? Well, uh, mostly wrong. Yes. Uh, so the anecdote you're referring to has to do with Benjamin Franklin. This is an often told story uh, toward the middle point of the uh, Constitutional Convention uh, as the convention seems really deadlocked over a number of really intractable questions. Uh, Franklin um, rises to uh, uh, really to admonish the delegates to ask, you know, have we forgotten uh, that during the recent revolution, our uh, struggle for independence, we, we appealed to uh, our maker, uh, and uh, he um, responded uh, and delivered us. Uh, and so effectively, uh, Franklin uh, says, uh, makes a recommendation that there should be uh, a chaplain uh, enlisted who would lead uh, the delegates in prayer at the beginning of every session going forward. Uh, and that's often told, and to best of our knowledge, is in, entirely accurate. Uh, it, it appears in James Madison's uh, notes uh, of the Constitutional Convention. Where the invention really uh, begins to um, uh, develop is what happens after that uh, encouragement. Uh, and as the story, and there are some variations, but typically as the story is told, the delegates are deeply convicted by Franklin's reminder. Uh, they're uh, quite unified in supporting uh, the idea of beginning the meetings with prayer. Uh, in fact, the most extreme arguments, uh, extreme retellings will say uh, that they immediately approved to uh, adjourn for several days to go to their various uh, homes and pray and fast, uh, and that this was the turning point. Uh, in the aftermath of this, there was a unity that had not existed before. The problems uh, are resolved, uh, and um, a, a stronger, more perfect union is, is created. That is all invention. And, and in fact, what we find in Franklin's own handwriting uh, at the bottom of the prepared message that he delivered uh, was that the delegates, with the exception of three or four, did not think prayers were necessary. In Madison's notes, we learned that actually there was a proposal to lay the, the measure on the table, effectively not to, to discuss it any further. Uh, so I, I tell that uh, anecdote at the beginning of the section on the Constitutional Convention uh, specifically because I want to head off the uh, the focus on whether the United States was founded as a Christian country. I, I think that American uh, Christians, particularly probably evangelicals who are interested uh, in America's past, have invested so much in the argument that uh, the founders were in some sense distinctively people of Christian faith. Uh, and I argue in the book that that's just not the best question to ask. Uh, the the prominent founders did not say a lot about their private religious convictions. They said a great deal, and they wrote a great deal uh, about how they understood human motivation. Uh, and so that's where I wanted us to take our, our focus, uh, just to um, uh, interrogate the, the founders as to their anthropology mm -hmm. uh, and to listen to what they had to say. Uh, and um, the, the thing that has always struck me is I think many uh, evangelicals who uh, insist that the United States was founded uh, as an American nation, actually don't pay very much attention to what the founders actually said, up to and including what they had to say uh, about um, uh, human nature. Uh, all kinds of opinion polls uh, suggest that uh, even among conservative American Christians, the idea that humans are by nature good uh, is, a, is a very common uh, assumption. Yes, and it's one that that, uh, that you challenge. We'll come to that in a moment. But yeah, I I was struck by that move that you make as you read the history, which is it's less important that 
that they were Christians or took a Christian view to this than that they adopted a Christian anthropology as you define it, which is this sense of people being, people being fallen um, and that we should kind of build institutions that, that, that are presume that you know, presume that. Um, I wonder though how much work, and this is a kind of big question, I think, but um, we have to break it, may have to sort of break it up. I wonder how much extra work is done for you in the theological underpinnings of that view of human nature. Because I can think of quite a few secular folk, kind of even even today, but it's through history. I'm not sure what Hobbes's religious views were actually, but Thomas Hobbes's view about you know what life was, what human nature was like. I think um, there were a number of 19th century liberals who didn't have a particularly elevated view about human nature, and I think there are lots of people even today who who actually think who don't think that well of of human nature. And so what additional work do you think is done from moving from a kind of secular view about people being you know, myopic and selfish and self-interested and so on? I mean, I've got Matt Cass Sunstein and Dick Thaler's stuff on Nudge. I don't know if you know any of that. But, but, but arguably the whole of behavioral economics is based on the fact that people are just like not great, not even great at being good to themselves. But um, and some of the economics is arguably based on the fact that people aren't great. They're self-interested and, and, yeah. and so on. So what? Why is it helpful to the way you think about the problems in democracy to add the theological element to what yeah. to what secular people could go along with from a sort of behavioral perspective? Right. Uh, well, that's a great question. And one of the things I would say uh, right off is is I really quite intentionally uh, try to avoid making any claim that um, the framers of the U.S. Constitution, at least, were being directly um, inspired to their views because of Christian convictions. I really remain agnostic on that. I, I, I think it's a claim that is n- really impossible to prove. And I think that at least um, a number of the prominent founders were uh, informed by uh, many, many sources, uh, their understanding of history, their uh, reading and philosophy, uh, and uh, to some degree, maybe perhaps their, their Christian uh, convictions. So I, I would m- make that observation uh, at, at the outset, uh, does uh, a theological understanding, say, of original sin, bring more to uh, our understanding than some other sources? That's a that's a very good question, um, and also not one that I really address so much uh, in the book. Some of it has to do with with the audience that I had in mind, mm-hmm. uh, with um, a, a personal sense of calling, really, to to challenge my community of faith. Uh, and in particular, American evangelicals, uh, to uh, be more consciously aware of the theological convictions that they bring uh, to um, their political behavior. I I believe, and I think you would probably agree, I think that um, all theology to some degree is applied theology. Whether we're conscious of it or not, it comes out in a way that we think and live and uh, and act. Uh, And um, uh, I was wanting... Uh, basically to call attention to my readers uh, that there was this really dramatic alteration that takes place over time in the assumptions that we bring. Uh, one of those, the, I think the view that was more common in the late 18th century that was consistent with the framers' uh, thinking uh, is one that traditionally theologians would refer to as, as something like a, the concept of original sin. Uh, and the view that becomes common within a half century after the creation of the Constitution uh, really is a thorough repudiation uh, of, of original sin. So um, 
I'm not really trying to make an argument, although perhaps it is an argument to make, uh, that it is it is vital to bring this perspective to bear um, to um, uh, our thinking about the structure of government. Uh, but I wanted um, I wanted to argue that there is a way to think about American politics uh, and use theological concepts in a way that doesn't torture or or harm the sort of historical reality. Yeah, I think uh, that, so. Yeah, that seems fair to me. I mean, I think, and you're very explicit about this in various points that big part of your project here seems to be, you know, these are my words, not yours, so you'll, you'll correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but to almost like improve the political theory of Christians within the US today and, and improve the degree to which their political activity and the way you think about politics is based on a, on a better theological grounding, right? So there's a, mm-hmm. in some ways I could, this would be, this would be a gross simplification, but in some ways you're trying to bring, bring a bit more historical accuracy and political science to the, to the, to your Christian community and maybe a little bit more Christian anthropology to your secular readers. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you don't say it like that, but, but it could be, be seen that way because you're afraid that you're afraid that a bad history and a bad theology has led to some bad political ways of being for American Christians, especially evangelicals. Is that, is that too hard? I think that's entirely true. And, and, and some of this is just, um, based on personal experiences, I have walked with uh, you know students at an evangelical institution now for for twelve years, and it's not an uncommon story uh, for very intelligent young people to make their way to, um, to to my institution. And by this point in their life, they've been they've been trained to believe certain things, certain historical claims about the American founding. And it has become so interwoven with their sense of religious identity and the argument for their religious faith uh, that when they confront um, often, I think, pretty compelling evidence that the historical claims they've been exposed to aren't easily supportable, it actually leads to a kind of crisis of faith. Hmm. And, and when I encounter that, I, I find it tragic uh, because, among other things, I don't think their faith should be bound uh, based upon uh, historical claims that aren't part of uh, divinely revealed truth uh, to begin with. Uh, I, I think it's a very unwise um, uh, approach to education. Uh, and, and so I, I, I really am, am wanting to, to help my students and perhaps their parents as, as well uh, realize um, that, that this was never a, a wise course uh, and, and that it's the wrong question. I mean, the, the, the section on this, uh, I think I had um, – uh, asking different questions. I think the questions that we've uh, focused on uh, are um, uh, almost not just not useful, th- they're actually detrimental. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I mentioned in the book that when someone approaches me in some social context and knows that I'm a Christian uh, historian, wants me to tell them about the uh, the founding of America and whether it was Christian or, or not, my first impulse is to is to ask them, so why do you want to know? Uh, I, I think it's almost always uh, for for not good reasons. Uh, we, we want to believe that the founding was Christian because that gives us leverage in cultural conflicts, or le- we believe that it does. Uh, and um, I, I want to re- just redirect the way that we approach the, the question to begin with. Yes, and you're you, you're you're very good on that, and some of the cultural stuff, which maybe we'll we'll get to. But I think the the implication of this is to take a, a more realistic view about the role of of democracy. Uh, a bit like you know, I think the framers themselves did, but by by dismantling the claim that 
there's some sort of Christian underpinning to the way we conduct ourselves, or to the nation or to our democracy and so on, um, which actually then sometimes gets secularized as a kind of democratic gospel, actually. I think some of that religious attachment you know, moves across to the way that other people, you use that phrase a lot, democratic gospel. It seems to me what you're trying to do is make democracy a kind of second-order question in a way. You're trying to say, the question is, does it work? Given, given that we're fallen and uh, whatever language you use around that, and given also that we're plural <laughs> and that we're diverse and dissenting and large, and democracies, you know, it's a, it's a good, pretty good. It's like the Churchill thing, right? It's the worst of all mm-hmm. systems except all the others. Um, and, and so you end up with quite a practical argument in favor of democracy, which doesn't rely on a theological uh, basis and therefore is not fragile to your chipping away of that of that basis because if it relied on a theological underpinning then you've just ripped it out from underneath so you're you're trying to in a sense to free our democratic institutions from the need for any theological justification at all and then they can be looked at on their own merits is that fair is that true yeah, I'd have to think. I'd have to think about that just a little bit. I mean, in fact, one of the things that um, I, I want my readers to wrestle with uh, is um, you referred to democratic gospel, uh, which which I use that phrase basically to um, uh, relate to what I think is the uh, always um, present message that human nature is basically good and that the majority's preferences are. Um, reliably uh, just. But I also talk a lot about what I call democratic faith, which is the idea that, that democracy itself is intrinsically good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really try to um, reframe the way that we think about that. And I draw a lot for this, of course, from uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who um, uh, I think as, as well as anyone drives home this idea that democracy is actually morally indeterminate, uh, that the, the best way to think about democracy is the simplest which is a form of government that translate, translates majority preferences into policy, uh, whatever those preferences are. Uh, and um, so I, I, I want um, Christians in particular uh, to, um, to realize that the question is not whether democracy prevails or not. It's what kind of democracy will prevail. Mm. And because we believe or should believe uh, that our human nature has fallen, this means that democratic outcomes may be just and they may be actually uh, oppressive. Uh, and um, it, it is not a uh, contradiction of democracy to say that it can lead to morally unjust outcomes. It's just uh, a recognition uh, that uh, democracy, by definition, works with imperfect human instruments. Yes, and, the, and it has to work with that and there's nothing, there's nothing magic to it or theologically inspired by it and so on too. And, and also I think what that means, at least what that means to me, and here I'm being a bit more wonky, I think it means that, that the particular design of democracy really matters. Right? It's, not just, it's not just there's democracies and there's not, but it's what kind of democracy and who gets to vote and what, how do you dis- design your congressional districts just to get really kind of mm-hmm. boring and stuff. But, but you know, do you have proportional representation or, or single first past the post and majority? How many chambers do you have? What are the chamber? What are the relations? Mm-hmm. All, all that stuff. So I think that the design matters because if you begin with a recognition that all not, not all quotes democratic outcomes are good, then it requires you to say, well, in that case, how do we design our democratic institutions that increase the odds that they'll be overall good? <laughs> Right, not mm-hmm. bad, but there'll still be bad, bad stuff coming out of it. What I worried a bit about when I read that section was 
that you say, you say something along the lines of there is a higher calling, there are higher goods than those that, that can be delivered by democracy. I'm not quoting it exactly correctly, but but in the hands of certain kinds of conservative, uh, religious conservatives in particular, that can lead to a strand of thinking which I think is is not unfair to describe as theocratic and to say, actually what we want are institutions that promote the good as defined by you know, Christian concepts of the good. Uh, and if it turns out that democracy is not serving those those higher goods, and there's a better way to do that, you know, Emperor Theodosius III or something you know. like that, let's, let's, you know, the Constantine option is sometimes the way it's described. You've got the Benedict yeah. option, which is retreat, but there's another Constantine option, which is take power and actually recreate a kind of Christian nation. And if, if so it, my fear is that it could be seen as an argument against democracy, in, in favor of theocracy. I'm saying it much more sharply than mm-hmm. I probably need to. But. Yeah. 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 I think uh, that's, that's uh, certainly worth uh, wrestling with some. I think the passage you're referring to or what you're referring to probably is where I um, take something from Irving Kristol, actually, mid 20th century conservative uh, who talked about uh, democratic philosophy as opposed to democratic faith. And, and his idea was uh, if we if we ever acknowledge the idea that the democracy itself is um, morally indeterminate, does not have an intrinsic moral dimension, then by necessity we must have some more foundational uh, set of of commitments of of moral values by which we evaluate a democracy uh, itself. One of the things I talk about uh, in in the in the book is that there are these two fundamental ways of approaching democracy, which in some sense are, are uh, incompatible. One is to think of democracy as um, uh, defined by the outcomes that are, that are generated. The other is, is to define it by the, the process. Uh, and um, the, the, the danger, I, I think, uh, is that the more we define democracy by the outcome, uh, oftentimes the, the more we move away from uh, the unfettered expression of the will of the majority. Uh, and so, for example, we'll say there should be certain kinds of restrictions on what the majority can, in fact, um, uh, accomplish. And I don't oppose that. Uh, I just think it uh, makes it difficult for us to think clearly when we call restrictions on the majority democratic. Um, uh, it, it's better. I mean, Tocqueville would have said any restriction on the majority cannot, by definition, be democratic. It's aristocratic. Uh, and he actually thought that the elements of the American system that probably mitigated against the tyranny of the majority were its aristocratic elements. He, he felt, you know, that the judiciary was effectively a kind of aristocratic holdover uh, from uh, an earlier an earlier time. That the Senate perhaps functioned uh, in that way, uh, and, and so on. Uh, I I don't think it's intrinsically wrong to define democracy uh, in that way. I, I just think that it contributes to uh, what I'm trying to push back against, which is democratic faith. Uh, The idea, if we just tinker enough and tinker enough, we will create a system which is um, reliably just. And uh, while while that's a a worthwhile aspiration, um, we we have to acknowledge that we're saying uh, it is a system that requires from time to time to us to say the majority cannot, cannot have its way. Yes, and then you put the constraints in. The way the way I would I think I would frame this is less as we have to constrain democracy uh, in favor of aristocracy, although I think you're right in the way you historically talk about that, and more the liberalism and liberal democracy 
matters too. And I'm thinking there's a nice quote from Isaiah Berlin who said, there's no reason in theory why you can't be more free in an absolute monarchy than in a democracy where there's majority rule. And so you could imagine, I think he had the, the example he gave was like, imagine a king of Spain in an absolute authority, but incredibly liberal, right? Completely. Plural. And you can think of people actually kind of historically who, you know, actually we've had some quite liberal, absolute monarchs, <laughs> uh, liberal in the terms of which I mean, it was just lots of individual yeah. freedom and so on. And then you've had some quite tyrannical democracies. And we're seeing now Yasha Monk's work on the rise of illiberal democracies, which I think is exactly mm-hmm. what you're getting at. So the way I think yeah. about it is, like democracy untempered by liberalism, which does take seriously individual rights and group rights and serial majority is bad or could, could be bad. So I guess that's a different way of saying that you shouldn't have a, like a democratic faith, but it has to be you know, somewhat tempered by li- liberalism rather than by aristocracy. Yeah, that, that would be one way to put it. I think, um, again, not probably the way Tocqueville would, but better way to put it. One of the insights of Tocqueville, which I think uh, resonates with what you've just uh, reflected, was that he would also argue that it's quite possible to have a, a great deal of equality in an unfree society, uh, which, which is sort of the opposite of, uh, of what you're saying, the, the other side of the, of the coin. Uh, and his fear was that Americans' commitment to equality was so great, they would prefer to be sort of equal as slaves uh, than unequal as, 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 as free um, uh, individuals. Um, yeah. So all, all of which is to say, I, I, I think what we're both probably getting at in some way is, is efforts to, to complicate uh, our thinking uh, about the way in which democracy, we believe, uh, delivers, delivers just outcomes. Uh, and um, I, I, I prefer, I think, Tocqueville's uh, uh, approach uh, in, in that uh, it allows us to say simply uh, that there are uh, circumstances that we can envision uh, where the majority absolutely expresses its will. And the result is, as he put it, with regard to Indian removal, um, an, an abomination. Uh, when, when you referred earlier, um, uh, whether the argument that I'm making might seem to provide a justification for those who would want a, a theocracy, uh, that certainly was not my goal, uh, <laughs> yeah. although I can imagine perhaps that it could be uh, interpreted uh, in that way. Uh, but, but, but I think uh, actually what, what Irving Kristol would suggest was that we all must believe um, if we accept the idea that democracy is not intrinsically moral or immoral, we all must have some more foundational or bedrock commitments than to democracy per se, because that's not really a very a clear commitment uh, at all, uh, he would say. So if you're Tocqueville, he would say, my two passions are uh, liberty and human dignity. Uh, th- those are my, my, my highest uh, commitments. And I will evaluate democracy in America or in England, other places, based upon the degree to which it is promoting liberty and human dignity. Yeah. And there, I think Mill would be exactly with him. That would be a kind of clear. And and the reason for that was precisely to create the space within which individuals can reflect on their own version of the good. And given that we're going to have conflicting versions of the good, we have to find some way to live together even with our growing diversity. And, and I'm interested in you know, the work of lots of people. I think I mentioned David French earlier, but uh, so think, what does it look like in a plural society? And I think it was either him or Pete Weiner who said something like, no, I think uh, it was somebody else. I'm, mis- I'm misquoting it now, but um, 
UVA uh, professor whose name escapes me said something like, Christians know what to do when they have all the power. And they know what to do when they have none of the power. And they've just been completely victimized. But what they're really bad at is sharing power. So, mm. so kind of, you know, mm-hmm. the idea of like, you know, a Christian empire, kind of like, you know, and, and we also know what to do when being martyred, which is to kind of martyr ourselves, but, but not so good at sharing power. And, that, and pluralism mm-hmm. in some ways does seem to be one of the kind of sharpest difficulties yeah. with, with a kind of a view, a very strong religious conviction of whatever kind, which is this is the good and this is the kind of high good. And so how do you think about that challenge of pluralism, which is obviously baked in now to U.S. society mm-hmm. in particular, religious pluralism, racial pluralism, yeah. national pluralism, uh, and how does that, how does that change, if, if at all, your way of thinking about the connection between human nature and democratic institutions? Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a great that's a great question. You know, uh, in the conclusion concluding section of the book, where I really try to speak more to uh, our present moment, um, uh, one of the recommendations that I give to my readers um, uh, is is to strive to live uh, as if they believe in the idea of original sin. Uh, and, and of course, I I'm I'm delighted when non Christian readers pick up the book, but I. Uh, I certainly had in mind at that moment um, uh, a reader who would at least be open to that possibility. Uh, and so I pose a question, how, how would we live uh, if we took the idea of original sin seriously? Meaning not that there's just a evil in the world, not that there are just forces that would uh, outside of ourselves promote injustice or oppression, but that there's something deep within our own hearts. Um, and, and I actually think that when we take seriously this idea uh, of the propensity for sin within us, within ourselves, each individually, it becomes an argument of sorts for uh, embracing a a pluralistic uh, society because we believe that uh, any effort to enforce a kind of uh, uniformity uh, becomes uh, will require the, the kind of power that our Anthropology tells us will be dangerous, not only dangerous to others, but dangerous to our own souls uh, it, itself. Um, so, so I, I actually would argue that as we take original sin seriously, it becomes an argument for the broadest distribution of power, the, the, the least concentration of power, the most inclusive kind of vision of society. And I, and I take that, by the way, from uh, in part from from C.S. Lewis, one of the uh, l- little anecdotes that I share in the book is Lewis's uh, observation shortly after World War II that there are really only two uh, two fundamental reasons to believe in democracy. One is because you have confidence in human nature, and one is because you absolutely don't have confidence in human nature. Uh, and I think if we uh, sort of cultivate and nurture uh, that appreciation for our own sinfulness, that actually becomes an argument for a broad distribution of uh, of of power, uh, as opposed to some sort of uh, in, enforced unif- uniformity. Yes, well, it uh, taken seriously, it should at least imply a a necessary degree of humility. And you know, I, actually, both in act and in speech, you talk about speech and the importance of speech. And that's yeah. what you get you got you get quite applied there. Maybe we can talk a little bit about this, but you. You actually quote James, which is great because James, I think, is not quoted anything like enough. And uh, I should say that I, I come at this from an Eastern Orthodox perspective as a convert to Eastern Orthodox Church. And so 
slightly different view about original sin, actually, and the trans- sure, translation yes. of Romans five twelve. But that's probably for another day. Um, and different, slightly different kind of views of anthropology. But but there, there's this line in our liturgy, which is put put a guard around my mouth. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like you're speaking quite a lot about that, which is that it's precisely because we do think that we are ourselves in some way let's say broken, right? I think, as I said, let's leave aside some of the deeper theological arguments, but that we are, we are ourselves not perfect. It should put real brakes on judging others. And it feels like right now, Americans, and maybe even American Christians in particular, seem to be much better at spoiling other people's failings than their own. Yeah. So we see yeah. the sin in others, but not in ourselves. And that seems to be a theme of kind of what you're talking about through there, which is a bit of a call to humility and uh, Lack yeah. of judgment is that is that right? And where does that take you in terms of where you think the kind of current politics, of particularly the evangelical Christianity, is? Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I think you've put your finger on something that is, was super important uh, to me when I, um, leaving aside opportunities for exceptions, when I observe the way evangelicals uh, are speaking into uh, the political arena today, I, I say there is a people who do not believe in original sin. Um, uh, b- believing that there is evil in the world, believing that there are uh, moral truths to proclaim, that's that's not the same thing uh, as believing that there's sin in my own heart and that it's a propensity that uh, uh, never goes away in this life entirely, even if it can be uh, r- reduced. Um, so I, I think that um, I, I am challenging, hoping uh, to exhort uh, readers uh, to take that kind of um, individual brokenness, if if you want to use that term, or propensity for self-centeredness or selfishness, the willingness to inflict injustice on on others, to take that uh, absolutely seriously uh, and to allow that to infuse the way uh, that they talk about those who disagree with them. Uh, one of the ways I think about this, I've thought about this even more since since writing the book. I, I do quote uh, in the book uh, Solzhenitsyn's fam- famous line about the line between good and evil uh, running right through every human heart. The, the more I've thought about that, you know, if if you look at the survey data, surveys for the last 30 years plus, that's as far as they go back, ask questions uh, about how we understand human nature, men and women basically good. And between two-thirds and three-quarters of respondents regularly say, yes, ab- absolutely. But what does that mean? What does that mean to say that I think people are basically good? I don't think it means, uh, if I answer you know, the polar in that way, I don't think I'm saying, I don't think there's evil in the world. I don't know anyone who denies that there's evil in the world. So when we say that simultaneously there is evil in the world, but most people are basically good, I think what we're effectively saying is that Solzhenitsyn is wrong. That the line between good and evil has to be outside of me. At least. Uh, it, it, it doesn't run within my heart. Uh, and so increasingly, I, I do think um, we believe that that line between good and evil uh, does run uh, between our group and that group, between us and them, however we define that, Mo- more often than not in terms of political affiliation. So as an instance, explicitly said it doesn't run between political parties. It doesn't run between nation states. And we say, no, you're, you're wrong. It exactly defines the, those boundaries. Um, and I do talk about, a lot about the book just about the rhetoric that we use. And when we begin to speak of those who disagree with us as enemies, it, it has so many devastating uh, repercussions. 
uh, for the functioning of our system. Uh, and I, I believe a people that took seriously um, uh, original sin would be both more humble, you've used that term, and more charitable. Uh, because that, that person who is my political opponent uh, is shares something very much in common with me, which we are both desperately in need of grace. Uh, because of of the the moral struggles, moral failings that that plague us all. It's one of the uh, I think one of the a very powerful phrase here. One of the most powerful phrases that, that's actually used in secular discourse as well as religious is "there but for the grace of God go I." And I've always thought yeah. that was just a, that was a very important sentence because it does speak a lot to this idea of humility. And I I think the the confrontation of the capacity for evil in ourselves is a necessary first step towards being good. I think, you know, or being better, I one should say, you know, striving at least to be better. So I, I agree with all that. I think that I did react a little bit to to your reaction against that polling, actually, because mm. I sort of, I, I, what I sort of, what I really want, actually, is a world where we see our own sin, uh, but not others. Uh, and so yeah. actually, I, and, yeah. and, you, and this point does say basically good. And I'm thinking I've raised three kids and so on. And actually, I think I've raised my kids to believe that people are basically good, basically. Mm. Right. So, you know, other mm-hmm. things equal. But, and I think I, and I, I wanted them to go out in the world thinking that if you encounter someone that your heuristic, your default should be, this is person is most likely to be basically good, right? They might be having a bad day, in which mm-hmm. case they're going to be a jerk, and they might not be a good person, but other things equal. So I, I fear a little bit of that loss. You said charitable, but in some ways, a view that people are basically good can really support charity towards others. And I, and I worry that overstating the intrinsic sinfulness of everybody mm-hmm. doesn't actually militate against the very generosity of spirit that you've just said you want. Yeah, that's a good point, and I'm I'm not entirely persuaded by by your your point, but I would say that one of the things I've thought about, even since the book came out, that I wish I had done better, uh, would be just to give more attention to the flip side of the argument, which is um, the the degree to which we are, by definition, uh, image bearers. Uh, the the theological concept of imago dei, which I think is a nice companion. Um, to the idea of original sin. So when I when I look at that person that I encounter uh, in whatever context, yes, we share in common our fallenness, but yes, we also share in common uh, what the Bible says uh, about uh, the human condition is a, a creature of God. Uh, so I think you know about the the psalmist um, crowned with glory and honor, created a little lower than the angels, fearfully and wonderfully made. These are all truths that w- that we cling to, and the challenge, of course, that is that we have to hold them in tension. With the other things that the scripture says, which is the heart is desperately wicked and that we have all sinned and, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and, and so I, I honestly do wish that I had done that better. Uh, I, I don't think per- personally, I, and, and I'm not wanting to you know, um, challenge the way you raised your, your children. I, I don't think the answer is too late. Same for me. I've, <laughs> I've messed mine up probably so much. Uh, but uh Rather than than softening the the truth, which I, I would say the truth of original sin by saying we're basically good, I, I would say uh, to pairing it with this uh, other uh, revealed truth, which we are made in the image of God and have priceless worth, mm. uh, and so bring those together, even as ill fitting as they seem to be, or intention as they seem to be, 
um, I, I think is, is what I would recommend. And I wish I had done that better in the way I framed the book. Well, you'll have a, another chance. I'm sure this would be the next one. But I, I do actually gives me an opportunity to say I, I do think that whilst clearly your balance in this book was to focus more on on some of the, the fallenness and what that, that means, there's something very attractive, at least to me, around this around Christian anthropology in the sense of both of those things being true, right? And and and, and yeah. it's striking to yeah. me that there are, we do have two versions in Genesis of the creation of of, of man, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. and so a bit of dirt that you sculpt and you know, made from dust, and then also the image of God that then falls. And so there is this, and the fact that Genesis is a, is it celebrates the fact that you have these two very different creation stories, right? It's very often missed, I think, that people realize that. Mm. And uh, as the book was put together, it was fine to have two versions. And so for me, the idea of everybody has something of a divine spark in them. And that's actually, back to come back to Tocqueville's point about dignity yeah. and, and that kind of moral equality, at least. But at the same time, we also have this capacity and this inclination towards doing ill not least to each other. I think the combination of those two insights mm-hmm. is actually pretty close to how I think. That's how I feel we are. Yeah. That's what yeah. we like. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And, and as I said, I, uh, even as I talk about the book now, uh, I find myself emphasizing the image of God more. Uh, and, um, uh, and that's in part because, because of, of feedback that I received and also because this is a, ongoing sort of conversation that I'm having with myself and with others. Um, uh, and uh, I, I was impressed because I've taught on this for now 30 years or so. I, I am so deeply impressed at the uh, declining emphasis on human sin that characterizes the first half of the 19th century. That was really what I was wanting to, you know, to, to hammer on. Mm. Uh, and even the title of the book, We the Fallen People, uh, which I think I thought was was clever uh, at the time, tended to point me toward um, the, the kind of emphasis that, that the book ultimately... Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.